0: Please pray with me before we look to God's Word together. Our Heavenly Father, we always need help, and we need help now. We have good intentions. We desire to hear what it is that you have to say in your Word, and we have desire to live it out. But we know that we're weak, and we know that we've been here before, so I pray that you'd help us, each one of us, to be able to grapple with what is here in such a way that it does make a difference in the way we live our lives from this day forward. Thank you for the words of the Lord Jesus that are here. We thank you in his name. Amen. I have a confession to make. I am not looking forward to preaching this message this evening. I have another confession. I'm looking forward to it being over afterwards. (laughs) These are some hard words, and I, I... I personally like to give softer words, but these are the words of the Lord Jesus that we need to hear. So if you'll follow along with me, the lukewarm church, Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say... Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Tonight, it's time for us to take our temperature as a church, and each one of us as individuals, taking our temperature spiritually. When I was in the hospital recently, I had my temperature taken, I guessed, somewhere in the neighborhood of between 15 and 20 times at regular intervals all day and all night. They wanted to be sure my temperature was where it should be. Told them a lot about my physical condition. Many of you have had the same kind of thing where your temperature is taken at regular intervals. The temperature we're going to take tonight is going to tell us a lot about our spiritual condition. It's possible that we're a lot sicker than we realize, but it doesn't have to be negative. It's also possible that we're more healthy than we thought we were. It's possible that there are individuals among us who are able to say, you know what, I'm doing the very best I can before the Lord And I'll continue to try to do that. And it's also possible that there are some among us who say, you know what, I am not at all where I should be, and I know it, and I need to make some dramatic changes in my life. The people in view in the Scripture tonight obviously were not healthy. When their temperature was taken, it turned out to be something that was very, very bad. Their condition is reflected in a story about Mahatma Gandhi, the leader in securing India's independence from Great Britain, You may recall, those of you who've studied history at all, he employed nonviolent civil disobedience. He's still highly venerated in his country and around the world. Matter of fact, he happened to be a Hindu. What a great influence that he's had on a lot of people as a Hindu over these years. Wouldn't it be great if he had been a Christian? Wouldn't it have been great if all that he had to offer, he was able to put for the Lord Jesus Christ himself? While attending a university in London, Mahatma Gandhi became almost convinced that the Christian religion was the one true supernatural religion in the world. When he graduated and still was seeking evidence that would make him a committed Christian, he took a job in East Africa, and for seven months he lived in the home of a family who were members of an evangelical Christian church. As soon as he heard that, he was very pleased He decided here would be the place to find the evidence he was seeking that Christianity really was the one true supernatural best religion that anybody could ever have. Here are some sad words. But as the months passed and he saw the casualness of their attitude, um, put the word lukewarm maybe in there if you want to, But he saw the casualness of their attitude toward the cause of God. He heard them complain when they were called upon to make a sacrifice for the kingdom of God. And he sensed their general religious apathy. You can put lukewarm there, too, if you want. Gandhi's interest then turned to disappointment. He said in his heart, No, it is not the one true supernatural religion I had hoped to find. A good religion but just one more of the many religions in the world. What he had found were some lukewarm Christians, and he was going to base his whole opinion about Christianity on those people that he lived very close to for seven months. However you measure the temperature of that family, they were not contagious Christians. They were not infectious at all. What if Gandhi had come to our church or what if he had come to your home and observed everything that goes on there for a seven-month period or seven days or seven hours even? What if that had actually happened? Well, I can tell you this. If he had been at our church on Wednesday afternoon, he would have gotten a good taste what real Christianity is. The reason I mention that is because so many people have commented to me, and I hope that I won't embarrass anybody by this, but it was at the funeral of Joe DeAngelis's mother. And uh, at that funeral afterwards there was a luncheon downstairs, and as usual we had a group of individuals who did a whole lot to make the family feel right at home. They Prepared meals brought dishes in served them set everything up and then cleaned everything up afterwards And I can't tell you how many family members came up to me afterwards Family members who aren't a part of the church They came up to me afterwards and said I can't believe all the love that the people in this church are showing And I mentioned that just to say that it always doesn't have to be negative We don't always have to well. well what if Gandhi came to live with you? Well, if Gandhi came to live with you, maybe he would have been a Christian maybe he would have followed the Lord Jesus Christ because he saw what goes on in your family, in your home, and in your heart as it acts out for the Lord. Well, in the seventh and final letter to the churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, the letter to the church at Laodicea, we have here the sternest and the most severe of all of these letters. There's not a word of commendation here. No healthy situation to be praised. No building anybody up to receive the bad news that's coming up in a little while. Only condemnation and a loving appeal to turn things around and a reminder of the love of the Lord Jesus. So let's take a look as we have been following the, uh, the same outline as before. We're going to take a look at the destination, first of all. And the destination is going to be Laodicea, And if you take a good look at the map for just a moment, and you see here we have gone the trade route. We started out in Ephesus, and the letter was written here from Patmos. We went all the way up and around each of these letters to these seven churches. A couple of them were recognized as good churches. Now we come to Laodicea, and Laodicea is not recognized as a good church in any sense at all of the word. Laodicea was about 45 miles southeast of Philadelphia, about 100 miles due east of Ephesus. Nearby neighbors that didn't receive a letter here were Colossae and Heropolis. It was a city where several roads came together, made it an important center of trade and communication. It was also a fortified city. It was named for the wife of Antiochus II, the Greek king of Syria, who built the city in the third century before Christ. The city was very opulent. In fact, they refer to the people there as millionaires. The many millionaires combined to build theaters, a huge stadium, lavish public baths, and fabulous shopping centers, such as they were at that particular time. Can you imagine that if several millionaires would get together and we wouldn't be taxed for the stadiums and we wouldn't be taxed for other things? Everybody came in and decided that because we're wealthy, we're going to share this with other people. that, That was something that had happened there. The city was so wealthy that after the great earthquake, and I've referred to this before with regard to some of the other cities, after the great earthquake of A.D. 17, the city was destroyed. The people refused the customary subsidy from Rome to rebuild it. They said, we can afford to rebuild it ourselves. We are completely self-sufficient. We don't need anybody's help. And certainly we don't need Rome's help. Now, there are three other important things I should mention about Laodicea. It will help us to understand what's coming later in the letter. First of all, Laodicea was famous for its production of a very good quality of glossy black wool. So the manufacture of cloth. Clothing and carpets from that wool was very profitable. Find a lot of money running around in Laodicea. The second important fact: Laodicea had a famous school of medicine and a famous ointment known as Phrygian powder, that was then formed into an ointment and used in treating eye problems. Doctor Charlie, do you use that? No, they don't. Still use that? They should. But no, I'm sorry. They, they shouldn't. Thirdly, Laodicea was also an important banking center. By this time, the banks were in operation. This was documented in that Cicero is recorded to have cashed huge bank drafts in Laodicea. So the Laodiceans were rich for a variety of reasons and they knew it. And the pride of the city was infectious. The Christians caught it and the Christians were sick with pride as well description of Jesus now as you take a look at the scripture here it's in verse 14 and you see this there are three ways he's described three titles the amen the faithful and true witness and the beginning of God's creation the amen not an amen but he is the amen the final word if you will The word amen means firm, trustworthy, valid, sure, faithful. came to be used as an adverb when somebody agreed with something that had been said. Then they would say amen to that. It's a confirmation of agreement, a word that means so be it or truly. You may recall that the Lord Jesus used this word a couple of times, well, twice at the beginning of a discourse to mean most assuredly. He did it 25 times, repeated the word. Some of our older translations would say, verily, verily. Others would say, truly, truly. Or, I tell you the truth to affirm that he was saying it twice. Or, I assure you. It was a custom that was passed over from the synagogue to the Christian assemblies. When somebody would read... He would comment, he would pray, and then the people would say, amen, making what was said their own. We kind of know all about that, except maybe we say amen without realizing why we're saying amen, amen. But it's so be it, or I agree. I'm with you in that prayer. Jesus identified himself here as the amen. He is the ultimate in reliability. He needs no one to confirm what he says. You can count on Jesus to be absolutely true, absolutely accurate in everything that he says. It's important that the people in Laodicea hear that at the beginning because he has some things to say they are not going to want to hear. They want to know. He wants them to know that the one who is saying it has the ultimate authority in doing that. Interesting verse in Second Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That's in Jesus. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. We're talking about the ultimate amen, the amen, who's the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, it follows then that he would also be the faithful and true witness If he's the ultimate amen, so be it. This is true. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he's the faithful and true witness. His words are going to be absolutely trustworthy. We may be tempted to lean on our own understanding, but trusting in the Lord with all of our heart makes more sense because he's the only one who's truly dependable to his word. And Then thirdly here, he is the beginning of God's creation doesn't mean he was created. He's the beginning of God's creation, translated as the ruler elsewhere of God's creation. He's the only one who has absolute power over the world because he's the source and origin of all creation. You'll turn with me to some words that I think will bless all of us in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, where we're reminded of this fact. Colossae, not very far away from this particular city and the other cities that we've been reading about, but in Colossians chapter 1, we pick up in verse 16. In fact, let's pick up in verse 15. Never want to leave that one out. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. Did you note know that? By him all things were created. Sometimes we think that the creation belongs just to the Father, but all the members of the Godhead are involved in creation. And this is by Jesus. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now you can imagine the people of Laodicea, some of these books were shared back and forth with each other. They would have read these very words, but they weren't living up to them. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So much more, and we could read there what what a great passage that talks about the Lord Jesus. And so we have before us so far a significant description to a church and a people that are deluded in their thinking and about to be shaken from their apathy. Jesus showed his credentials before he served the warrant. They may not want to hear what they're about to hear, but they're going to hear it anyway, and it will be real. So by using the three titles that he used here, he's preparing them for what one author calls the humiliating and awful truths he's about to share and the authority from where it's all coming. So we follow the outline, the next thing we would talk about is a commendation. I already mentioned there is no commendation for this church. If you can't say something nice about somebody, don't say anything at all. Nothing at all was said about the church at Laodicea. Condemnation, plenty. If you look again back at verses 15 through 17, you can see there is a lot there that is condemning of who they are. If you want to summarize it in one word, the condemnation is that they were lukewarm. Lukewarmness. It is a sickening, nauseating, tepid, not hot nor cold temperature that characterized these people one of the things as we we see that it was so nauseating to the Lord Jesus, he wanted to spit them out of his mouth, it says in verse 16. Because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Spit is a mild translation. It's from a Greek word, emesis, from which we get an English word. Do you know what that is? Emesis. Do you know what an emesis basin is? Do you know what you're doing it? I don't need to elaborate. Yeah, this is this is not just want to spit you out of my mouth, it's more like spit up. Because the word emesis has to do with vomiting. It's a, it's a noun and and the verb form here has to do with vomiting, and you'll see that in a number of the translations. A number of the translations actually use that word spew. Is another word that is used vomit, reject with extreme disgust. These are very strong words. The Lord Jesus is so upset with these people who are lukewarm, he literally wants to throw them up. There is no specific doctrinal problem or sin that is mentioned here. This is generally a state of being on the part of these people. They are lukewarm probably, you could say, in just about everything simply a lack of real commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a half-hearted effort to go through some of the motions of following the Lord Jesus. Some of the writers will say that they are neither heathens nor Christians. They're not hot. They're not cold. They don't know the Lord. They're not absolute heathens. They're somewhere in the middle. Uh, That's what lukewarm is all about. The nauseating thing to Jesus is that there were those who were inflicted with respectable, sentimental, nominal, skin-deep religiosity that is still widespread among us today. There are those who call themselves Christians. There are those who know how to use the right language. They're in the right spots at the right times. They look like they may be Christians. But if you were to follow them around during the course of a day, you would find that wherever they go, if they were brought to trial and accused of being a Christian, there would be very little evidence to convict them. That's lukewarm. And that's a picture of what we're seeing here. Jesus actually said, would that you were either cold or hot. Anything but lukewarm. That's the worst state in which to be. How many of you enjoy iced tea? (laughs) You think it's a trick question. Uh, You enjoy iced tea. Okay, well, how many of you enjoy hot tea? How many of you enjoy the iced tea when it's at room temperature? One, two, not quite as many. How many of you enjoy the hot tea? when it's at room temperature. Same one over here, and (laughs) a few more over here. If my wife hadn't raised her hand, I would say, most normal people, (laughs) but I can't say... Most people don't like it in the middle, but you can think of many other examples of things that actually become a little nauseating when they're in that lukewarm state. If Jesus is all that we claim him to be, then nothing less than wholehearted, full commitment is called for. It's possible that there are lukewarm Christians in our midst tonight, but Jesus deserves a whole lot more than lukewarmness. Jesus needs to be first in absolutely everything. He needs to be first in my heart, in my home, in my church, in my neighborhood, in my business, in my school, in my leisure, in my troubles, in my sexuality, on my team, in my relationships, in absolutely everything. And if he is not, then we're robbing ourselves of the joy that he would give us if we were allowed that to happen in our lives, if we would fully cooperate with him, if we served him wholeheartedly, not lukewarm and certainly not cold then we would have that joy that he gives to us. Does Jesus' statement seem a little bit odd? It's better to be ice cold. He would rather that we be hot or cold, but not lukewarm. Ice cold? If to be hot means I'm everything I should be for the Lord, and to be cold means I am absolutely nothing for the Lord, he would rather that we be either hot or cold, but not lukewarm. That means at least lukewarm is a little closer to hot than then, then the other way is, seem a little odd. But here's the point, I believe. Lukewarm Christians walking around are the worst possible example of followers of Christ. It's better to be cold and anonymous. It does the less hurt to the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you go around saying you're a Christian and live like a lukewarm one, that does a whole lot more damage than if you just remain anonymous and are cold. And that's what I believe is the point, at least partly, that is being made here. In verse 17, if you take a quick look at verse 17 again, Jesus informed the Laodiceans that there is a difference of opinion he has with them. He doesn't think as highly of them as they think of themselves. You can see where they think they're rich, they think they've prospered, they think they need nothing. Jesus would disagree on a far greater level. It might be true on the material level that they are all of those things, but on a spiritual level, they're none of that at all. They're in big trouble, in fact, because they show us by this that they are lukewarm individuals. There's a glaring contrast between what he says and what he thinks with what he really is, that is, those people who are the lukewarm ones. But Jesus described them as wretched, pitiable, Poor, blind, and naked, despite their banks, despite the frigid powders of their medical school, despite their black wool and the cloth and the clothes and the carpets. I need nothing, they told the Romans. They could indeed manage without an imperial subsidy, but they could not manage without the grace and the mercy and the love of God for them. This, then, is Christ's view of the nominal Christian who's not really committed to him. Morally and spiritually, such a person is a naked, blind beggar. He's a beggar because he has nothing with which to purchase his forgiveness or an entry into the kingdom of God. He's naked because he has no clothes to fit him to stand before God. He's blind because he has no idea either of his spiritual poverty or his spiritual danger. Jesus is not going to let anybody stay there. He's going to bring an exhortation as he does. First of all, he's asking would that, he's telling them would that you were either hot or cold. But we have an exhortation coming up right now. Exhortation, if you look at verses 18 and 20 with me, a beautiful contrast between the independent spirit of verse 17 and the dependent spirit of verse 18. Because now Jesus says, buy from me. You don't have it. You need to buy from me. And I counsel you. You need some good advice. So he's telling them, I counsel you to buy from me. And then he tells them what they really need. They think they've got it all. He thinks they have nothing. So now he's telling them they need to be dependent. I won't ask you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 55, but let me read three verses in Isaiah chapter 55. This comes from the Lord. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. And eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear, and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. And so, come to me, he says, both in Isaiah and here before us. Verse 18, if you glance at that again, welcome news for the naked, blind beggars. They are poor but Christ has gold. They're naked, but Christ has clothes. He has salve for their eyes so that they can see. And again, let them no longer trust in their banks or their fridge and eye powders or their clothing factories. Let them come, Jesus says to me. I can enrich your poverty. I can clothe your nakedness. I can heal your blindness. If you look at verse 19, Here's a reminder that Jesus loves the Laodiceans. He would prefer that they be zealous. The word zealous or earnest means to have warmth of feeling for or against. He wants them to get hot. He wants them to burn with zeal, the word literally means, to be heated or to boil with strong emotions. He wants us to be zealous in the pursuit of good. He wants us to repent of our apathy toward him. So that's the exhortation. And that exhortation is a very clear one. I counsel you to, to buy these things for me or get these things for me. I do love you, he says. I reprove and discipline you, so be zealous and repent. Stop doing what you're doing and start doing what is right. Are you getting a little bit of an idea why I started the message the way I did tonight and told you I'm not looking forward to preaching this one? Getting a little bit of an idea for this, and why I'll be glad when it's over, but I trust that God's Holy Spirit will continue to speak to me and speak to all of us about what is written here. There's no room in God's will for halfway Christians. The way out is to zealously pursue what leads to godliness, to repent of being lukewarm, of being a spiritual zero, because that's what lukewarmness is, and to become obedient then to God's Word. Verse 20, very famous verse. Jesus then says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The eating refers to the main meal of the day. In that culture, that was a significant occasion for having intimate fellowship with the closest of friends. Jesus wants to have that relationship with us. Is this invitation in verse 20 for the unsaved, or is it for the saved? If you were to read about this and check the commentaries and go online and check what everybody is writing about this, you will see some people who vehemently say that this is for Christians because it is to a church. I don't believe that it is just to Christians. It certainly is to Christians, but I believe that it is actually because it says, if anyone hears my voice And opens the door. I I believe in a church such as this, when we're looking at verse 18 and the Lord Jesus is giving that invitation to come to Him, does that refer to real Christians or only to those who profess to be Christians and are not? Or does it include some of both? I believe the letter is to a church of individuals that are lukewarm. They're in the middle. It's entirely possible when they're in the middle that some of them are a little north of the middle, some of them are a little south of the middle. It's very difficult to say who is a believer and who is not. Just because they're in a church and addressed as a church doesn't mean that they don't need salvation and Jesus' invitation here. Yes, the invitation is to the church, but Jesus is on the outside. He's saying, let me in. And individuals are in that church, and I believe he's saying the same thing to them. But there are some who would say, and just to be fair, there are some who would say you should never use this verse when you're inviting people to have Christ come into their life. I'm not one of them, obviously, because I do that quite often. But I do believe that when it says here, as it does, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. That's the church. That's the individuals who are in the church. Verse 22, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So I apply verse 20 to the saved and the unsaved. Because of that word, anyone, I take to mean exactly that, anyone. Well, we have an expectation of promise, as in all the letters. Expectation of promise in verses 21 and 22. To the one who conquers, the conqueror, or some of your translations still call this the overcomer, he gets to sit on Jesus' throne. Can you imagine that? The throne is the symbol or authority and conquest being present. Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. I don't have that on the screen. But in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. This promise is even better. This promise is better than having my own throne somewhere remote from the Lord Jesus. This is actually sitting with Jesus on his throne throne. Can you imagine that? To the ones who have zeal, the ones who have heat, the ones who have repented, the ones who come the way that the Lord Jesus invited them to, this expectation of promise, you get to sit on Jesus' throne. I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. My imagination will not allow me to carry that as far as it needs to be carried, but if you if you just stop and meditate on what that means, sitting on the throne with Jesus, what exactly that looks like, I don't know, but it certainly sounds great to be able to do that. Mel, we have uh, beyond the expectation of promise, we have... A prophetic application. You may recall when we first started our study I told you that there are many uh, of the Bible scholars who will take each letter to one of the seven churches and will say it applied to a church at that particular time but it also applies to all the churches of all time because all of us have things in us that are in those churches. But they went a step further and they said also every letter to one of those churches also identifies a period of history, a period particularly of church history, so that the church at Ephesus would describe something that was happening during a historical period in chronological order up to this time. I haven't been mentioning all of them, but I mention this one because those who make this prophetic application will say that this letter regards the years from 1900 until the rapture. Describing the condition of the church in America. Describing the neo-Orthodox church. The church that is not conservative, not liberal exactly, but has liberal tendencies. It's neo-Orthodox. It's new Orthodox. It's kind of in the middle. It's kind of lukewarm, if you will. And they will point to that time and the condition of that church. Now I ask a question here. Why is Jesus so hard? on the Laodiceans. He was very hard on them, and I'll show you a little bit further in just a moment. But why is he so hard on them? Verse 19 tells us, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. His love never went away. And for some, they will say, that indicates that they must have been believers in that church. And again, I believe some of them were, and I believe some of them may not have been. But why is he so hard on them? Because of his great love for us. Sometimes when somebody loves, that person has to come up with the hard words and sometimes the hard actions. Not unloving, but hard. And that's what Jesus has done here. One day, two mountain climbers were caught in a very fierce storm in a range in the north-central part of Scotland. They were able to take shelter in a hut, but they knew they had to press on or they'd be engulfed by the blizzard. The story goes trudging through drifts nearly shoulder-high at times. They advanced only a few miles. And one of them tells the story this way. He says, All at once my companion seized my arm and said hoarsely and with thick speech, What about a snooze? I'm done. The temptation was almost irresistible. Rest would seem like heaven, but it would bring certain death. I struggled with my friend. But he lay down in spite of me. There was only one thing to do. I struck him with a firm blow on the face. Does that seem very loving? It does, doesn't it? Punched him right in the face. That seemingly cruel act produced the desired effect, and later we both staggered into the warmth of a nearby cottage. So Stoll tells this story. The city of Laodicea had a water problem. One nearby town had fabulous hot springs, and another had cold, clear water. That's Colossae and Heropolis that I mentioned earlier that are nearby but aren't written in these two chapters. Laodicea, however, was stuck with tepid, mineral-laden water that tasted like sulfur. Not hot, not cold, just Gross. Given these facts, the words of Jesus to the Laodicean believers in Revelation 3 must have stung. Jesus rebuked them for being neither hot nor cold, and when he thought of them, he felt like vomiting, like the effect of their drinking water. Why was Jesus so hard on the Laodiceans? Why did he say stinging words? because he loved them and he wanted what was best for them and what was best for them was not status quo it was not to keep on going the way they were going it was to become hot and zealous for the lord jesus christ i close with the example of one old testament individual a man by the name of caleb caleb made a claim and in joshua chapter 14 you don't need to turn to there but in joshua chapter 14 verse 8 he made a claim that he wasn't like the other spies, that he and Joshua followed the Lord. And the NIV, I like the translation there, it says they followed the Lord wholeheartedly. Caleb made that claim for himself. Well, anybody can make that claim for himself. But two verses later, Moses makes this, actually one verse later, Moses makes the same claim for him and says, and Caleb, includes him with Joshua, Caleb followed the Lord wholeheartedly. Heartedly. Okay, well, anybody can say he follows the Lord wholeheartedly, and maybe he can get a friend to say that, but here's what's really significant. In Numbers chapter 14, verse 24, this is God speaking right now, and he verifies what Caleb said. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me wholeheartedly, or fully as it is in the ESV, I will bring into the land into which he went, I will bring into the land um, into which He went, and his descendants shall possess it. And he talks about the rewards for that kind of a man, follows the Lord fully, wholeheartedly. That's the kind of person he wants us to be. I don't think anybody here wants to get spewed or spit or vomited out of Jesus' mouth. I don't think any of us want to be lukewarm. But he had those words to say to people who claimed to be a part of a church that honored him. But they'd stop doing that, unfortunately. Let's pray that we never stop and that we have the right zeal that we need so that we're hot. We certainly don't want to be cold, but we found out we don't even want to be lukewarm because that's worse. Heavenly Father, thank you. For your word and how clear it is, the Lord Jesus doesn't pull any punches. And thank you that it may not be easy to hear, but that's okay. Those are loving words to us. and Help us to follow through the way you want us to. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.